Hi, I'm Laura. And I'm Shelly. And together we co-host a podcast called Crime Scene Queens, which goes beyond the who, what, when, where, and why of true crime. We are forensic professionals here to cure you of that CSI effect. Expect unfiltered, fact-based banters about true stories from the field as we catch up and discuss autopsies, fingerprints, blood spatter, degloving, adipocere, and more terms you may or may not be familiar with. So follow us Crime Scene Queens on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Marbling. Trajectory. How to properly cut down a hangman's noose. Trace evidence. <laughs> You're so vanilla after mine. <laughs> Trace evidence. Cyanoacrylate fuming. AKA super glue fuming. I know, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of From the Vault. Thank you all for joining us again for part two of our conversation with Detective William Springer of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. I'm Jason Futch, and on this episode, myself and special guest co-host Gwen Berenger began speaking with Detective Springer about some of his more notable cases that he worked on. We talk about an interesting case from the 1980s about the murder of Anita Spearman, a former county employee who was killed by a hitman and what would become a murder-for-hire plot that would culminate into a national showdown between the U.S. courts and Soldier of Fortune magazine. Afterwards, we talk about Christy Luna's case. If you recall in our previous season of From the Vault, we talked about this case. Now you get to hear from the man who has lived and breathed this case since day one. We talk about the circumstances, the investigation, and the leads that surfaced. And we will conclude next week with part three, where we talk about Suzanne Poole, formerly known as Singer Island Jane Doe. In that episode, we will have never before released details pertaining to the investigation post-identification and why PBSO believes serial killer Gerard Schaefer to be the best candidate for her death. We will go ahead and present part two of our conversation with Detective Springer, but before you do, please make sure to give us a review on Apple Podcast and let us know how we are doing and how we can make the series better. We will see you all next week. Enjoy the show. Amongst your arsenal of cases that you've handled over the years, there is one big case that I did want to talk about. And this was a case that you actually helped resolve in the 80s. It was the Anita Spearman case. And it was interesting. I didn't realize we were going to go back this far. But then when I realized like how big of an impact the Spearman case made nationwide, when you consider some of the background information on this case, I mean, it did some things. And so I wanted to kind of touch base on you about that case. What do you remember about that? It was a Saturday morning. I remember that. You get a call of a woman murdered in her house. We get there and it's a beautiful neighborhood. She was the death in her bedroom. Her husband had left and went to McDonald's to get some McDonald's to bring home. And she was retired from the city of West Palm, assistant city manager. She had breast cancer and had mastectomy, had both breasts removed and was just recovering from that. You know, when you look at it, you think here's a poor woman who survived cancer and then it ends up getting beaten to death in her house. When you looked at everything, it didn't fit the normal crime. 
It was early in the morning. A shotgun was taken. Some jewelry and stuff was taken. Her wedding rings were taken. And when we started the investigation, you know, you got to look at the husband. But he had a great alibi. He went to McDonald's. He had his receipt from McDonald's. He went to his boatyard that he was, he had a marine construction business that he was turning his property on the water into a do-it-yourself marine business. And we worked the case, pulled phone calls, financial records. One day we get a call from Maryville, Tennessee. It's Agent McGarrett. He says, I got your shotgun. I thought, kiss my foot. And he said, I got you a snitch, Ron Emmert. Wow. Let me tell you, we were up in Knoxville in a flash. And Ron Emmert laid it all out. Mm. And, you know, it was a Soldier of Fortune magazine back then. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's still out there or not. Mm -hmm. But he said, yeah, Sean Dutre, not Sean Dutre. Oh, what's the other guy's name? Sean Dutre was a killer. You're talking about Richard Savage? Yeah, Savage mm-hmm. put his ad in Soldier of Fortune, and then he got Ron Emmert, Sean Dutre, and there's another guy to go out and do his hits. But when you went down through the magazine, you could see all these ads. And then when you looked at Spearman's phone records, you could see where he started calling all these ads till he got to Savage. And then the phone calls really went back and forth. Wow. And then we got the shotgun. We had the phone records. We had Ron Emmert, who laid it all out. Ron Emmert said they came down one time, took the $15,000 from Spearman, and then went back to Knoxville, never did the job. Wow. And he said Spearman called up to Savage, you know, demanding they come down and do the job. And then you could see from the phone records, yeah, all these phone calls that Spearman was making. Wow. So there was a real paper trail between Mr. Spearman. Yeah. But the best one was back then, the phone records, all you could get was long distance phone calls. You couldn't right. get local phone calls. I subpoenaed all the phone records from all the hotels and everything in wow. Northern Palm Beach County. And then I found where Sean Dutre was there at the Holiday Inn under a fictitious name the night before the homicide. And then what was really unique back then was back then it was Bell South. Yes. And they had an office in West Palm. Yep. And, you know, I'd go in there and they had two girls that worked in there and they saw me. I mean, they, you know, I had subpoenaed everything under the sun. The one girl said, listen, give us all the phone numbers that you have in Tennessee. Just give us all the numbers you got. I said, "Okay," And she said, just we'll get back with you. And probably within a week, they called me up and they said, get a subpoena for the pay phone at Denny's in Stewart, Florida for the day of the murder. And right there was Sean Dutre calling his girlfriend with the payphone. <laughs> wow. They the had, you know, cow. yeah, you know, and they said, just don't tell anybody else what we did for you. Cause then they figured they'd be, and they have so many subpoenas. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was so unique. I mean, you know, cause that puts Sean Dutre right there. I mean, I had him at the holiday inn and I had him within a half an hour of the homicide in Stewart, Florida. Damn, that's insane. And then, of course, you know, they did other hits. They'd killed a guy in Georgia and tried to kill some other people. But they were definitely, I wouldn't have hired them. They weren't that good. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have a question regarding the whole soldier of fortune thing, mm-hmm. simply because this case is something that I found particularly fascinating because when one of my family members got out of the military back in the uh, early 80s at one point, they actually considered responding to ads in Soldier of Fortune for mercenary work. Of course, my family member didn't do this, but was this particular avenue of like, you know, murder for hire ever really put on any department's radars prior to this? You know, I don't know. I know that for grins and giggles back then, I started calling them up myself just to see. And I actually got one that I thought, but it was out of my jurisdiction until I got with another agency, they had disconnected the phone and realized it had kind of hit the paper that Soldier of Fortune was when that came out about that. And that's when I think a lot of the ads kind of vanished. And then they got sued to Soldier of Fortune. Yeah. And that's actually kind of like where, you know, the Spearman case came in. Like that was one of those cases that led the way to soldier of fortune being sued how would you as an investigator approach these kind of cases for a murder for hire i mean you know you got to look at their backgrounds you got to look at what's going on in their life and going back through spearman's he used to go for a, a run every morning and his run took him right to his girlfriend's house so he had a girlfriend and for some reason it's greed and he knew that if he got a divorce he'd lose half of everything he named his boat he had a big boat he named it the equalizer that was because he was very competitive and he had a small marine business and he had to compete against bigger companies. So he got this boat to wine and dine people and he called it the equalizer. I mean, he was very, this was his business and I don't think he wanted to share it with Anita and he wanted to go with his girlfriend and here his wife ends up with breast cancer, lose both her breast. And, you know, some men can't deal with that. Right. You know, And I wonder, too, if like maybe her surviving breast cancer also encouraged him to seek a hitman, too, because now he knows, ah, shit, she ain't going to die this time. I need to make this fast. He basically told them that she was dying from cancer and he wanted to put her out of her misery. Oh, interesting. Okay, that is an interesting aspect. I didn't find that one. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, he wants to make himself look like a good guy. Yeah, for sure. But here she is. She's recovering. She's fine. She's going to move on. And that was another, you know, like I said, you can't figure out people, but that's purely greed is what that was. But we really don't, you know, Palm Beach, you know, there's some murder for hires, but I don't think there's prevalent. You know, it can be, but I mean, you know, you really got to look at for sure some of the things. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like right as soon as, you know, Savage and Dotry they got arrested, they were picked up over in Athens, Georgia. Is that correct? I know that somebody was arrested in Athens. I don't remember who. It could have been them. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember in the article that I read, they landed in Palm Beach and you and another detective had picked them up. And I guess Savage was very complimentary about the flight and everything about that. But Dotry kept his mouth shut the whole time. <laughs> yeah, he never said anything. He was very yeah. cold. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the other detective was Detective Odinger, and he was another great guy. Nice. He passed away. but um, oh. He was a super, super detective and a very nice guy. 
Wow. So do you think the fact that Savage, you know, was being so nice and complimentary, do you think he was basically trying to like, I guess he's trying to make himself look like the good guy here and, you know, trying to get a lighter sentence? Yeah, he was a con man. They're generally very nice to your face. But, you know, yeah. Sean Dutre shot a guy up in Georgia. There was another guy that was with them, and I forget what his name was, that tried to shoot a guy. The guy, and this guy even laughed about it. He said they used a Coke bottle for a silencer. He said that they're chasing this guy, and he says, I keep shooting at him, and I'm not hitting him. And the bullets would go to the end of the bottle, and then it would deflect down. And then they tied two grenades under the guy's car, and the guy's driving down the road, and they didn't, they were pins didn't pull out, and there they are bouncing underneath the car. <laughs> I mean, that's some of the stuff they did. But then, but they made a bomb and gave it to some guy who put it in his wife's suitcase. And it was about to go on a commercial airline and it blew up in the baggage trail. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That was a blessing. Yeah, for real. Because I remember yeah, that too. was a real blessing. But yeah, they were definitely a group mm-hmm. of, well, from my yeah. they were idiots, a lot of them. I mean, you know, they weren't, the, you <laughs> yeah. know. They weren't the smartest bulb in the box. Sean Dutre was the coldest guy and Savage was just a businessman. Mm -hmm. They just didn't, they couldn't get their act together. Yeah. And I noticed because basically the Spearman case was just like one of the few cases that ultimately trickled to Los Angeles County, where I think they were attempting to kill a district attorney in Los Angeles, if I remember right. He almost got killed by this same group of people, but yeah. You know, to me, you would have to be a little crazy to call an ad in the magazine and try to hire somebody right. to do that. But, you know, right. I don't, you know, you can't figure out what goes through the mind other than Spearman just wanted to get, get his wife killed and yeah. move on and go with his girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, and this whole thing ultimately, you know, led to Soldier of Fortune getting rid of their classifieds because people were abusing it to hire, you know, guns for hire, which, yeah. you know, the yeah. Spearman case was one of those. And I think some of the other, like Gwen said, they had ads in there for mercenaries, too, that they were looking for people to go to other countries and be mercenaries. Right. Because I remember there were some things I remember seeing some of the old classifieds. They were looking for people to go to Rhodesia and South Africa and the Middle East. And I was like, holy cow, like this is wild. Yeah. We had to been crazy to to go with them ads. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, they ultimately, you know, got rid of classifieds because people were abusing it. But then. You know, Spearman is on trial for murder for hiring somebody to whack his wife and he gets a life sentence. And if I remember right, he got a life sentence in that case. And then he goes to Polk County. He's in prison. A year later, he's trying to escape from Polk County. And then I guess from what I remember reading, he had one of his relatives try to get a helicopter to pull him out of the prison. That was in Palm Beach County. Oh, that was in Palm Beach County. Yeah. Spearman Spearman was trying everything. Spearman was going to pay a guy 10 grand to put marijuana in my house so he could discredit me. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then he paid another guy, I forget how much, to put a voodoo spell on me. Oh, geez. Then he paid another guy $25,000 to kill the prosecutor. And I don't know if I was included in that deal or not, but anyway, he gave this guy 25,000. Yeah. And a guy went out and bought himself a new Pontiac uh, Trans Am and was up in Cocoa Beach, <laughs> high on cocaine. 
when oh the my cops went up and he's got this briefcase and stuff. And that's <laughs> when he tells him, you know, that this guy oh, in prison had 25,000 to kill these people, but he oh just my. took off with the money. He was paid some guy, you're right, to get a helicopter and land it on the sheriff's office. He had the nicest guy. I won't mention his name on here because you know, yeah. what he did was he gave his friend the money to manage while he was in prison. Yeah. Because Anita's family took him to court. And under Florida state statute, you can't gain from murdering your spouse. Right. So they took half of the money. So he gave this guy his money. And then he would say, write this check out to this guy, write this check out to this guy, or give this guy this money, give this guy this money. Wow. Because I finally pulled him in and I said, you know what? You need to stop. I said, because you're going to jam yourself up here oh, by yeah. doing this. So you know who ended up with his money? Who did? His ex-wife that he divorced years ago. Wow. Poetic oh. justice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Amazing. You're talking about irony. I mean, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, his ex-wife got the money. That's insane. I mean, holy cow. It's just like, you know, some of the stuff that you're relaying to us, I didn't find it all anywhere. Yeah. This is great. And then I guess ultimately, oh yeah, go ahead, Gwen. I do have a little bit of a weird question now that the ex-wife has been kind of brought into the picture as well. Was his girlfriend knowledgeable of any of this? Good question. And of the murder? No, no. Yeah. Okay. No, I will say one thing. She wasn't the most friendliest woman. Because when I gave her a subpoena, she slammed the door in my face. Ooh. It wasn't too receptive. And then she's, you know, she wanted to deny being his girlfriend, but, you know. Wow. Well, I mean, but then ultimately, you know, I guess Spearman just ran out of ideas and he went down to the very last idea was just, well, let's just go ahead and end this life sentence early and kill yeah, himself. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he's the type of guy that I knew that he would never be able to live in a prison. Mm -hmm. He was an outdoors man. He was, you know, Marine construction. Yeah. And you take that freedom away from him. But yeah, that was definitely an interesting case. You know, post case, Richard Savage was imprisoned in the state of Florida until 2006. And then he was transferred over to federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, where he died in February of 2011. And then as for Sean Dotry, so Sean Dotry, as you mentioned too, you know, he was facing murder charges in other states as well. Yeah. And so in 1989, he was sentenced to life in prison in the state of Florida, but then he had those detainers and ultimately they transferred him back to Nevada where he ended up being found guilty of a murder there. And he's currently in Nevada. He's actually serving a life sentence in Southern Nevada. We were able to find that out through the Department of Corrections there. A uh, lady who works there relayed that information. He's inmate number 6666. Like I said, he was a cold, cold guy. In this situation, though, when you really look at the aspect of it, these three suspects ultimately ended up getting off real easy in this. Well, wouldn't you think? Well. You know, a lot of states, you know, the death penalty sounds good, but, you know, you got to get people to agree to it. And it's right. pretty hard when you set down 12 people and you say, you know, and you need the majority. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got a person's life in your hands. Yes. And you're the one who's going to say, kill it. And, you know, 
that's not our human nature. Mm-mm. You know, most people don't want to kill somebody. They're not yeah. interested in killing people. They don't, you know, it would be hard for me to sit on a jury and say, unless it was a real, unless it was a kid, if it was a small child or a child or a young adult or something that was really vicious or they were a serial killer, then, you know, or they tortured their victims or did things like that. For me to be able to say, yeah, because, you know, there's different degrees of murder, you know, justifiable sure. manslaughter, different things. But when you're a vicious killer, yeah, then I wouldn't have a problem with saying, well, you know, the, I'm used to the electric chair now. I guess you got to, it's lethal <laughs> injection. Lethal and then they, now, so. yeah, well, they're trying to get rid of, you know, there's so many different things. But yeah. when you think about, and the sad part about the death penalty is that they have so many appeals and the family waits. And then, you know, if you get, it all depends, you know, they could get a new trial. Then the family's got to go right. through all that again. So, yep. you know, there's pros and cons to the death penalty. I mean, you know, back in the old days when, you know, they said hanging, they took them out the next morning and hung them and it was over. But now, you know, like I said, Rose has been sitting up there since 1976. Mm-hmm. He's going to die of old age before he dies of anything. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, as we go into this next topic, talking about Christy Luna, there was a suspect, I guess you guys had in mind at one point, Victor Wignetti, and yeah. he ended up getting out on parole, but he died, I think, some like shortly after that Nero yeah. Gala. So, it was, you know, it's like sometimes the justice system, man, mm, <laughs> I have my thoughts on it. But. Well, you know, I always believe and I still believe, mm-hmm. you know, if we don't get you, God's going to get you. Yes. What goes around comes around. And, you know, in the end, God's going to get you. And in yeah. that situation, one Yeti, because if I remember right, he had stomach cancer. And, no, uh, he actually had a blood clot in his legs. Ooh. And a blood clot went to his lungs. Well, hell, that's still, <laughs> yeah. still justice yeah. right there. Well, trust I me, think. I followed Wynetti. I know exactly what happened. I know where he was living <laughs> when he died. Yeah, I know who he was living with. Yeah. I can tell you all about Wynette. Yeah. And I'm not really that far from Fort McCoy either. So it's yeah. like, you know, I'm only like maybe 45 minute drive there. I tried keeping him in under the Jimmy Rice Act. Yeah. But he never committed a sex crime in Florida. Mm. His sex crime was up in Exeter, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, as we kind of segue into Christy Luna's case, because this is the one I re- really wanted to talk to. Yeah, this about. is what I wanted to talk about. This other stuff, you know, I mean, yeah. it's interesting, but, you know, I want to solve cases. That's what I want to do. And I want to bring closure to, I like to bring closure. I really would love to find Christy. Absolutely. And it's just like one of those stories too, like when Gwen and I dissected the Christy Luna case after watching the hunt, I mean, it was just one of those things where we had a lot of questions. We had a lot of thoughts about it. And we like literally praised of how you and the sheriff's office has handled this case over the years. I mean, I remember Christy Luna's poster up here in in Swanee County, where I grew up. I grew up in Swanee County. And I remember her poster actually being in some of the grocery stores up here, the FDLE flyers. So like the reach was outstanding because once I got used to the internet and I started seeing Christie's picture on the internet, like I remember that case, that girl was on a poster at the Jiffy store. So I'm like, yeah, like her case had reach in the state of Florida. And 
So what do you remember in detail, like that early on in the case, this, like once you started picking up this case, tell us a little bit about that. Like I said, we came in probably a week after she disappeared somewhere in there. Anyway, when we started interviewing friends of Christie's, that's when we ran into her friend who told us about Chuck and Willis Rambo. And Chuck and Willis were molesting her, and they would give her money, and they would molest her, you know. And we know that Christie went to the house. So back then, we split up in teams, like, forget who was on what team. But anyway, I say, Don Ugliana worked on this case, too. I have to go back to my reports. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, he was there because, yes. Okay. Yes, he definitely was because I remember what happened now. Okay. Anyway, we split up into teams, and one of the teams was to interview the victim and put together warrants and search warrants and everything. And we got good statements from her. And, I mean, it really looked promising. I mean, you got this guy that close molesting her best friend. And we arrested him in the morning. Chuck had gone to work already, so we had to go pick up Chuck at work. We brought in Willis and Chuck's sister, Willis and Chuck's sister's boyfriend, interviewed them all. Chuck confessed. Willis, we talked to Willis till almost midnight. He would give up little bits and pieces. And her friend never really implicated Willis the first time. Then when we interviewed her, she said, yeah, Willis did. But I think she was more afraid of Willis. Anyway, we arrested them both. And I don't know how far, you know, we got them convicted, but we kept that house all weekend long. I mean, we went through that house. We went through the backyard. We went through everything. I mean, everything. Came up with nothing. Very disappointing. But I mean, you know, did they do it? Well, Chuck has never been arrested again. I went to re-interview Chuck, I think back when I came back in the detective bureau in the 90s. He lived in a trailer. And all Chuck did was slam the door in my face and tell me he wasn't talking. <laughs> Willis subsequently continued molesting, but he was, he's the groomer type. Yeah. Hook up with the woman with kids, groom oh. them, and then molest them. Mm. And when I found out about that, the detective that was working the cases, I said, we're going to work these up good because we want him gone. Mm-hmm. So he's doing life. And I talked to him again and he swears up and down. They had nothing to do with it. Do I believe him? I don't have any, Thing. If I had something to prove he did it, trust me, he would have been arrested. Mm-hmm. And back then, Chief Trainer was the chief of Green Acres, and he was a, a super guy. Where Chuck, or where Willis worked, there was a well. I swear, they dug that hole so deep that tobacco had to build a ramp to get down in to keep digging. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we dug. I mean, he dug. I mean, I don't know what it cost, but I mean, you know, there's nobody can say that he didn't dig a hole. I won't <laughs> say we. He dug a hole yeah. so yes. deep just to make sure. I mean, that's how dedicated everybody was. Yeah, I mean, and- this case has been worked by some hard. I mean, mm-hmm. back in when we started, if somebody said, gave us anything, we were digging holes. I swear to God, we dug more holes looking. I mean, you know, we wanted to find her. I mean, you know, we was. Yeah. And they were hell bent to find her one way or the other. And we just worked and worked and worked and come mm-hmm. up with nothing. Yeah. So let me ask you this, though, because now we're, you know, this happens in the early 1980s, you know, Adam Walsh happened and Stranger Danger, yeah, stuff like this. Do you believe that based on some of those events, that's what, you know, that and the fact that, you know, she was an eight year old child that just disappeared out of thin air. This is why, you know, Green Acres and ultimately the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office really did a lot of digging and hard work in this case. I know, you know. We're parents, too. And I don't know if you're a parent or not. Oh, I'm not. If you ever had a little kid, mm-hmm. your little kid take off from you and you don't know where Matt, even if it's only for a minute, 
the panic that goes through you. Sure. You know, it's panicked. I mean, if you're walking through a parking lot and your kid jerks away from you and starts running through the parking lot, you're panicked because you're afraid they're going to get run over. Oh, police officers, you know, we're out there to help you. And that's what we're there for, to help and do things. So, I mean, everybody was just out there working, trying to find her because, you know, we were hoping to find her alive. We were hoping that we could find her. We just hit a bunch of dead ends. I mean, with Chuck and Willis. And then all of a sudden, here comes Victor Wynetti. Yep. Tammy Belanger gets missing up in Exeter, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And who's in the area? But Victor Wynetti. Right. And then they end up arresting him for parole violation because he came to Florida. And he was on parole for molesting his stepdaughter. That's what he molested her. He groomed her and molested her. Mm-hmm. Like Willis and Chuck. You know, I'm not a specialist on sex offenders. But, you know, there's different types of child molesters. You've got the groomers that went and groom them. Then you got the ones that will snatch them off the street and stuff. Like Willis and Chuck were like groomers. I think it was public knowledge back then. But, you know, mm-hmm. Willis and Chuck. It was a dysfunctional family. Willis was having sex with his sister. The baby mm-hmm. that she had was Willis's sister. So it was a very dysfunctional type of family. And there's something that people don't realize. In homicide investigations, there's no secrets. Mm-mm. All the skeletons come out of the closet. You may think you're going to hide them, but eventually they're going to come out of the closet. But anyway, Chuck moved back to Tennessee. He's living up in Tennessee. Yeah. I keep checking on him. He's never committed any other crimes that I can find. And like I say, Willis is locked away safe and sound. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about him doing anything. Oh, yeah. Victor's deceased. I don't know what all, what all did you read about Victor? So with Victor Wanetti, because he came in our radar when we did the initial episode on Chrissy Luna's case, because it kind of bled into the Tammy Belanger case in Exeter, New Hampshire, where he had also been suspected of abducting this girl. And based on his sexual history and stuff like that, apparently he had an inmate. There was a a friend, I guess he shared a cell with, and apparently this friend had relayed to law enforcement that he had something to do with Tammy's murder or abduction, rather. I believe that was the story. And then there was some things about him having inappropriate relationships with like 14, 15-year-old kids and stuff like that as well. Let me put it this way. Okay. A lot of the inmates said that Wynette said a bunch of stuff. Well, the first thing, I, I don't trust inmates. There's always sure. a motive behind some of the right. stuff. Right. And I wasn't privy to that part of the investigation because Green Acres took that and they worked it, worked it. I guess they felt comfortable doing it, which is fine because it was their case. So mm-hmm. they worked it. I took the case to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the Adam Walsh Center. Mm-hmm. I presented the case. And of course, you know, Wynette looks good. I'm not going to say he doesn't, especially with the inmates' testimony. Yeah. Well, what I did was I tracked down the inmates and I found one who was sitting in federal prison. One of the key ones was sitting Mm -hmm. in federal prison up in Atlanta. So I went up and I interviewed him and he said, yeah, yeah. I asked him, would you take a polygraph? Mm -hmm. He said, yeah. So I said, okay. Well, I knew I couldn't do it in Atlanta. They wouldn't even let me take the tape recorder in Atlanta. Yeah, I don't know why, but anyway, then he moved him down to Florida to Coleman. So I called up Coleman, talked to his counselor or whatever, and I told him, I said, I want to come up and do a polygraph. Yeah. He said, come on up. So I took a polygraph and sit down with him. He gives him a polygraph. He's lying. You know what he tells me? He thought I could pass the polygraph because I just wanted to give the family some closure. But Mm -hmm. then he tells me that 
It was all made up. And the guy that made it up, he said, this guy can calm you out of anything. So now you got to take all those statements from the inmates and think they're all BS. Yeah. Because, you know, like I said, you know, to be an investigator, you got to question everybody. I mean, you just mm-hmm. don't take for face value that right. what they telling you is the truth because that's what you want to hear. I mean, yes. that, uh, sure. That sounds great. I want to hear Victor Wynetti <laughs> did it and you're telling me he did it. I'm, yeah. I'm just tickled to death. Yeah. I'm going to believe you and I'm going to arrest Victor Wynetti mm-hmm. when all you're doing is lying your rear off to me yeah. to get something or just to, you know, so yeah. you can't just take what people tell you. I mean, that's mm-hmm. my job is to eliminate people. So you tell me Victor Wynetti did it. I'm going to try to eliminate Victor Wynetti. And if I can't eliminate Victor Wynetti, then I know I got the right guy. Right. And I guess, you know, in, in a position like this, you really have to have a good bullshit filter for sure. Well, you do. But I mean, you know, like I say, you just can't jump mm-hmm. for joy when somebody says, well, and I'll be absolutely honest with you. When we looked through everything, you know, before you told us that and that, you know, Victor Juanetti looked like a very good suspect, especially when you consider where he was. Yeah, I know. What's the odds of him being in yeah. this place and that place? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I still can't get past that other than, you know, yeah. and I'll, t- I'll tell you something else that Victor did. Mm-hmm. It kind of shows me that maybe Victor didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. Victor gets out of prison. Mm-hmm. He's living in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. with four or five other sex offenders because this oh, guy well the guy had a good idea mm-hmm. what he did was he gets his trailer in the middle of nowhere and when these sex offenders get out they got no place to go yep so he takes them in and he charges them six seven eight hundred dollars a month rent sticks wow. them in this trailer and he's got four or five in there he's making some good money with sex <laughs> and they're in the middle sure. of the woods of nowhere yep the only thing is they got sick of victor and kicked him out of there Oh, my goodness. Because <laughs> all he did was bitch to him about Detective Springer. And he just his attitude. Wow. Well, this guy, Victor, and I don't know who helped him, mm-hmm. but he filed a $2 million lawsuit against me in Palm Beach County Court. He claimed, maybe I shouldn't tell you what I did, but I will anyway. <laughs> Go for it. He claimed that I ruined his whole life. I ruined it from day one. I framed him when he was looking in those windows at those little girls back in, when he got out of jail and came down here. That was me that did that. I did all that, which I didn't. I wasn't even involved. But yeah. what I did do to him was I got permission from his, the victim in, in New Hampshire to use her name. So I wrote Victor letters in prison as her. What? Wow. Because I wanted to see if he would talk about Christy. So, you know, it's just, it's no different than, you know, these guys going on the internet playing 13 year old girls. Right. And these yo-yos falling for it. When he fell for it, that I was her. I didn't think he would, but he did. And he wrote back letters and I couldn't get him to say anything about Christy. Oh man. He did relive his, some of the things, you know, Mm -hmm. and when I retired, I went down to the prison and I told him, I said, you weren't writing to her. You were writing to me. And then I went in and I took all his letters back. Oh, my goodness. Like, I bet you that made his heart sink. <laughs> what did? And he blamed me for ruining his relationship with his stepdaughter. And I'm thinking, you didn't have a relationship with her. You right? You're, you're, with in, you're in freaking prison on a sex offense charge, essentially. Yeah. Like, anyway, seriously. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, 
you know, I thought it was pretty unique, but like I said, it, it didn't work what I wanted it to do. I mean, that's pretty damn unique. I mean, that what yeah. I did was I would write the letters. Oh, actually, I would write out the letters and then mm-hmm. I had an analyst. She would write them in her handwriting. Yeah. And then we would send them to Exeter and then Exeter would send them ah, down to Slick Willie. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> now that's unique. I mean, and yeah, you're right there. I mean, essentially, you know, that's before the internet and, you know, no, the this was state. after the internet. You oh, it was. Yeah. This was in 2008, 2009. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is amazing. I mean, this is, I mean, but, what, I mean what a you know, my idea was to see if he could talk. Yeah. He just mm-hmm. didn't, you know. Yeah. Maybe if I could, somehow I could have, you know, mm-hmm. if I had the internet or something like that. Maybe I could have, but I don't know. Wow. You know. Well, that's an awesome footnote to that. I mean, mm. you know, it was kind of awkward, right? You know, I had mm-hmm. to play a female, you know, but it, I thought I did pretty good. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, awesome. it was but, best made plans and mice and men. And that one just didn't go right. But, least, yeah. but anyway, he was really upset with me. He was, that's mm-hmm. why he was suing me. So I'm thinking, uh, here's a guy that we're accusing of all this. Mm-hmm. So most people, if I would accuse you of something, You'd want to get as far away from me as you could get. Right. You'd want me out of sight, out of mind. Yes. You don't want to drag me into court. I don't know how I ever thought he was going to do it. But I never knew about the lawsuit until I get a letter saying that this case was dismissed uh, and for inactive, you know. And I, yeah. So I went to my legal department and I said, then they go down and I found out that he did a lawsuit against me for, for <laughs> a million or two million. I've got one of those. I just cannot believe that somebody didn't see her get picked up. Now we haven't got to, you didn't get to Ferris yet. Yes. Ferris. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about Ferris. Cause I know we kind of touched a little bit on him because he also had some interesting history as well. Yeah. Well, see now you got to look at Ferris because Ferris lived catty corner to where Christie lived. Right. So she had to walk by Ferris's house to mm-hmm. get to her friend's house. Ferris, his wife, babysat mm-hmm. her friend, and Christy would be there with her friend. So he had access to her. The day that she disappeared, his wife and kids were at church. He allegedly mm-hmm. was at home alone. And he made the statements, well, they'll never find her. She's down in Everglades. Right. I remember that statement. Yes. Mm-hmm. Of course, his house is destroyed. Everything's gone. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed him. I went up to Virginia. I interviewed him before he got convicted. When he was in 2010, before I retired, I interviewed him. He wanted an attorney. He said, I'm, you know, my attorney says I'm going to beat this. He said, I'm not talking. I mean, we did <laughs> chat a little bit because, you know, he's talking. So I'm going to let him talk because I can't use it in court, but I can impeach him if I ever rest him with what he said. Sure. So, Absolutely. you know, so he was talking and we talked and then, but he denied it. Then we went up to Virginia and interviewed him and it was pity for him because he didn't do anything. These little girls knew more than that. And they're the ones who, you know, led him down pressure was paid. And, you know, they attacked him and and molested him, you know, basically that's sex offenders, you know, they they want to blame the victim. And then of course, if you want to talk to him, then you've got to blame the victim too, which is really hard to sit there and blame an eight year old girl or six year old girl. But in order to get these sex offenders to talk, sometimes you got to go right along with them. Is it enjoyable? No. No. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, though. So as you've like really studied Bill Ferris, do you think that he might know something? Like, do you think ultimately he may know something about this case or is he just talking? To me, he's as good as suspect as Wilson Chuck and Victor Wynette. I don't have any. I don't have anything. That's mm-hmm. the problem. I don't have anything. If I had something, mm-hmm. then, you know, if I just had one person say, yeah, I saw her get in this kind of car or, or I right. saw this or I saw that. Or, you know. If somebody says, Joe Smith told me he did it, like I said, if, if he's your relative, man up, you know, yeah. do the right thing. You know, I know it's going to hurt and I know it's yeah. going to suck because you're going to think all oh, your neighbors are going to look at you and think, you know, you got a, a sicko for a cousin or a sicko, yeah. whatever. But, I'm, you know, it's the idea that it's not fair. It's just not. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, man up, do the right thing, you know, yeah. step up the plate. And I agree with that, too, because it's like, you know, when you really think about the situation, too, I mean, Christy couldn't have just disappeared in thin air. I mean, she was people saw her at the store. People saw her playing with kids. I have people that saw her at the store and where the septic tank we dug up was right across Caddy Corner. I talked to the girls there that people were setting off the fireworks. And the one girl says, I remember her. She came over here. She stood here. And then I saw her walking down the street. And that's it. I mean, wow. she was there. I mean, you know, like I say, we searched the rooms upstairs of Bill's store. I mean, like I said, back then, and I will say Green Acres, we worked Green Acres, the FBI. I don't think there wasn't a place we didn't look. Just so you know, that wasn't the first septic tank we dug up. When I retired, the detective that took over dug up a backyard. If you got something that I can put together, I mean... The only reason I dug up the, the septic tank was because of the close proximity statements that I could verify. And then when I could verify that and put it all together, it looked pretty good to me. Sure. And that's when we went ahead and did it. I mean, you know, you just can't tell me she's in the backyard here and that's it. I need a little more than that. I have to be able to establish some probable cause. Yeah. I mean, wherever you get a good tip, you've really got to follow through on this. I mean, you know, 40 years almost and still no answers in this case. And it's such a shame. A, for lack of trying, though, I'm sure. That's for sure. And you got to realize that back then we didn't have the sex offender registry. You didn't right. have nothing. No cell phones, no nothing. I brought this up in my last podcast about Christy. You know, there was a lot of haters that came out at times that said, well, why was she out there? Why would she go to the store by herself? Why would a mother let her go to the store by herself? Well, that's 1984, and that's what we did in 1984, mm-hmm. you know? Yep, yep. I mean, and it, like I said, it was right around the block. You could almost see the store from the house. So it wasn't like she went six blocks, ten blocks, a half a mile down the road. She yep. went around the corner to the local store where all the kids went. And the mother did nothing wrong. So, no, you know, don't come out hating the mother right. and saying the mother was wrong, you know? Right. And that's the thing, too, because like my sister, she's in her 40s now and growing up, you know, she grew up an 80s baby. Like she was always wandering around Live Oak at the time, you know, and Live Oak probably then was probably just about as small as Green Acres. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, you know, you don't I mean, you didn't really have to worry about stranger danger or worrying about ending up like the Walsh kid or yeah. stuff like that. I mean, yeah. it just didn't happen. But for this to happen, you know, with Christy, it was it's just a shame. And when you look at Adam Walsh's son, yeah. I mean, he was taken right out of the shopping center. Yeah. Broad daylight. Boom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nothing. You got to wonder, you know. How do they manage that? When you're preying on kids, like say there's always somebody out there. And I know St. Lucie County had a child murdered 
and they believe that a former deputy was responsible for it. I, rec- I remember this. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that he came over to Palm Beach County and, and, and picked up Christy Luna? Possible. Very possible. I don't have anything to go by. I don't yeah. have anything to, you know, and that's my problem. I mean, you know, and he's dead, which is really sad because I definitely yeah. would talk to him, but I, you know, for sure. unless somebody in his family knows something, you know, I don't have anything to really go talk to anybody about. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, if they know you don't have anything to talk to them about, then they're not going to talk to you. Absolutely. And they may talk to you for a couple of minutes just to see what you got. And they figure <laughs> out you ain't got nothing. You know, yep, so. that's it. So admittedly, when we did our first episode about Christy, I was slightly on the, why was she, you know, going to the store on her own train? And then we just sort of discussed the times and the proximity but honestly, my question that was a little bit bigger than that, I guess, was why was she barefoot? Like, it's Florida. It's hot. Asphalt is hot. The barefoot part made less sense to me than the just wandering to the store on her own. You know, kids are kids. And yeah. a lot of kids go barefoot in Florida. I see people all the time barefoot. And I wonder how they do it. I can't do it. But some people right? can. Yeah. They got, I don't know. I don't know how they do it. But yeah. The FBI and everybody, they really, I mean, we looked at the family, we looked at everybody, mm-hmm. and there's just nothing there to show. And then, like I said, if the family was involved in any way, I use common sense on a lot of things. You know, she went missing in 1984. Jenny has not stopped looking. Mm-hmm. If she had anything to do with it, she would have probably hoped it went into the archive someplace and just vanished. But she's yeah, out there. She had a big sign she put up at one time. I mean, I really feel bad for her because she wants to find her so bad just to know what happened. And like I said, she's not looking to put anybody in the electric chair or the death row. She just wants Christy back. She wants Christy back mm-hmm. and to know what happened to her. And I think she would probably be just as happy to get Christy back. If she could just get Christy back and know where she's at. And I know one thing, like one of the big consensus, because I talk to a lot of families who, you know, have been affected by cold cases, by, you know, older cases. And I think one of the biggest questions that they have is why, like, they don't want the death penalty for these people. They just want them arrested and they want answers in these cases. It's not about, you know, exacting vengeance. They want to be able to go to, they want to be able to go to bed at night knowing that- What happened? I don't remember back in the day, they used to say at 11 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Remember that? <laughs> I remember that in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you know where your kids are? So, you know, when you can lay your head down on your pillow at night, mm-hmm. you can sleep because you know where your kids are. Right. They're in bed, they're asleep. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to bed, lay your head down. If you know your kid's out there running around someplace and hasn't come home and they were supposed to be home at 11 o'clock, you're going to be looking out the window, waiting for them to pull up because you're worried, you know, and you want to make sure they're home safe. But then mm. you're a little angry at them, too. Yes, they exactly. disobeyed you. But at the same time, as a parent, you're worried about it. Absolutely. And, and like I say, when they're finally home in bed, mm-hmm. then you can lay your head down. Exactly. And I remember growing up in Suwannee County, even in the 90s, you know, we were all tight knit, all the kids in the neighborhood knew each other. We always hung out in the woods. And I grew up in this trailer park that was called the Live Oak Pines. And I remember there was this particular street lamp that was positioned near 
the trailer we lived at. And every time it did not matter how low the sun was, but when that light came on, you, you had five minutes to be inside that house or you were going to get your ass whooped. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so, you know, I remember a lot of this stuff, you know, yeah. we always had these schedules we had to keep and, you know, talking about, you know, 11 PM, you know, where your kids are. We have a new station based out of Jacksonville, WJXT, every night at 10 o'clock, they would play this, dun, 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 and then they would say, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? And I just remember growing up, and I think they still do that too. But yeah, I mean, it brings me back to my childhood and just remembering, you know, what we did to make sure we were safe. But yeah. my mom always made sure as soon as the light came on, you would hear in the distance, James, Jason, it's time to come home. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, yeah. And like I say, you can bet if you didn't come home, your mother would be very upset. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very and then if you time. never came home, she would have really been upset. And that's, that's, what's, that's what's sad, you know. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the heartache and the pain. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Not knowing where your child is and not Absolutely. knowing what happened to your child. Absolutely. And, you know, we always said you don't want to have to bury a child. No, no. You're not no, supposed no. to be. That's not the way things work. Nope. And, you know, when you have to do that, that's, you know, sad enough. But mm-hmm. when you don't know where your child's at, it's really bad. And to go on all this time. Mm-hmm. And, and like I say, it's a small community. That's what I can't believe that somebody right. doesn't know. And, you know, it's like I know people probably think, well, Springer's probably really ticked off at that girl that gave him the tip about the septic tank. Yeah. I'm not. No, I really appreciate her coming forward. It wasn't, the, you know. It's not her fault. She had some good information that she believed was true and mm-hmm. factual. And I checked it out. A lot of it was factual. It was true. And everything she said was there, except Christy was. You know, I'm not angry with her. I'm glad that she had the courage to come forward. Amen to that. And not hide it away. We worked hard and it just didn't pan out. And if somebody else could come up with something like that, you know, maybe, maybe we'll hit dirt, pay dirt, you know. Having a lead that like you can investigate, at least, even if it turns out to not give you anything, is, at least in my opinion, way better than having no leads. That's the way I look at it. I mean, if I, you know, like I say, you give us information, we're going to follow up on it as far as we can. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say we can do everything, but eventually, like I say, I just, like I said, it's such a small area and everything that I just cannot believe that she just vanished and nobody saw anything to go ahead and wind down this topic here. Cause we also want to kind of touch a little bit more on Suzanne Poole, And there's a whole lot to talk about in Christie's case, but well, I appreciate it. Let me get this much out. I mean, I want to get out yeah. as much as I can. In fact, and I know there's nothing to really go on except that she went to this convenience store in the afternoon mm-hmm. on May 27th, 1984. Yeah. And poof. And so what can the community, like, I mean, Palm Beach County, even as far as up here in Columbia, Suwannee County, or even across the country, what can the community do to help solve Christie's case? And I do have a big question to ask you here too. And actually this was a question Gwen wanted me to ask. What would you like to say to anybody who may have information about Christie's case? Anything thing is, if you got information, please come forward with it. You're not in any trouble if you sat on information for 20 years. I mean, if you didn't aid in a bet in the crime, 
knowing about a crime is not a crime. Not telling us about a crime is not a crime. But what you have to do is to come forward and give us the information so we can bring Christy home. We just want to bring Christy home. We're not going to look at you as, you know, one thing about police officers, I'm not here to judge you. I don't judge you. That's not my job. I don't judge your lifestyle. I don't judge anything about you. However you live your life, as long as you're not breaking laws, is fine with me. I don't care how you live your life. That's none of my business, and I'm not going to judge you about it. I just want to be able to bring Christy home. I want to be able to find her so that I can give some closure to Jenny so she knows where Christy's at. So tonight, or tomorrow night, or the next night, she can lay her head down on her pillow, knowing where Christy's at. And, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, she won't be hurt if she's dead. Yeah, she's going to be upset. She's going to be hurt. There's no doubt about that. But just to know where she's at would be the biggest relief. And like I said, I'm not going to judge you. And I'm not going to say, well, geez, why didn't you come forward 20 years ago? No. You know, I can understand why people don't come forward because of the family, because of this, because of that. But, you know, just come forward. Give us the information we need. And I completely agree with that. And one big thing I do push as well is Crime Stoppers. I mean, Crime Stoppers, I mean, you're not going to be identified if you submit a tip through Crime Stoppers too. So it's like, you know, even if you have to go through Crime Stoppers, at least it's something. And honestly, there's just a family out there that wants to know, you know, what happened to Christy. And I'm all for it. I mean, yeah. I mean, Jenny's got a sister and Christy had a sister. She'd like to know what happened to her sister. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like I say, they didn't get all the benefits and the joys that we all got through life. That was mm-hmm. taken away from them. And, you know, if we can just get Christy back, that would give them some closure. Not totally closure, but, you know, enough yeah. that, you know, she can lay her head down and know where Christy is. Please join us again next week as we talk with Detective Springer for the final time for part three of this amazing interview that we did with him. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on From the Vault. I'm Jason Futch, and on behalf of Gwen Berenger and Nick Wagler, we want to thank you for listening. From the Vault. A True Crime Podcast is a production of JPF Productions. This episode was written and directed by Jason Futch and co-hosted by Gwen Berenger. Please be sure to listen to her podcast, A Light for Erica, available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Special thanks to the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, Public Information Officer Terry Barbera, and a very special thanks to Detective William Springer. Please make sure to review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we are doing. Coming soon, be sure to catch us live and on the air at Radio King. More details to come. Thank you for listening to today's episode.